0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Daily Remedy Podcast. Today we are here with Dr. Adam Sifu, general internist who divides his time between clinical practice, medical student education, and scholarly work related to evidence-based medicine. He's also the senior faculty scholar at the Buxbaum Institute for Clinical Excellence at the University of Chicago, and he's the author of the book, Ending Medical Reversals with Dr. Vinay Prasad. So Dr. Sifu, thank you for joining us. Thank you very
1: much for having me. It's a a pleasure to be here, listen to a bunch of your episodes, love the work you're doing, so glad to join you. Well, well, thank you, we appreciate that. And we enjoyed reading your book. It was
0: especially interesting, particularly given the pandemic and everything that has swirled around during that time. So for the audience who may not have heard the book before, how would you describe it to the uninitiated audience?
1: Yeah, so um, Ending Medical Reversal was um, our take uh, on, describing what medical reversal is, and I'll kind of get into definitions of that. giving a whole bunch of examples of, of medical reversal sort of throughout, I don't know, the last you know, 30, 35 years in medicine, uh, talking a little bit about our research, how often medical reversal occurs, um, talk about why it happens, uh, you know, trying to get into the weeds a little bit with, with why we see so much medical reversal. Um, and then you know, get into a place where, how can we present, prevent it in the future? either through how we fund research, how we cover research, how we educate students. And then we do take a little bit of a pause um, at the end to talk about, look, how can you as a patient um, seeing a doctor um, sort of avoid getting therapies which are destined to be reversed in the future? Um, We kind of wrote the book. Um, We expected it to be for a kind of educated, intelligent, interested lay audience. Um, I think in reality, it's appealed um, much more to people sort of within the field of medicine, which is fine. Um, But I think every author ever says, boy, I wish my book had had broader appeal. (laughs) Um,
0: No, no, uh, the book was an amazing read. And I think a lot of people who may not be actively practicing medicine on the day-to-day inner workings of medicine would really benefit, particularly as the book, frames key anecdotes that encourage the reader to think in an almost contrarian manner. Right. So there's a technique of framing, presenting the information, and recontextualizing. In a book about medical decisions and essentially medical information and knowledge, what was the rationale behind presenting the context and information in that way?
1: Yeah. um, So let me just, let me kind of define what we're talking about first and then um, answer the question. So, so, you know, the way we define medical reversal, because I think it's important for answering that is, is medical reversal is whenever a currently accepted practice gets overturned. Okay. And when we mean overturned, it means it's proven not to work. Okay. Or it's proven to be you know, worse than whatever it replaced, okay? We totally expect there to be replacement in medicine, right? The way we think medicine should revolve is you've got a practice, it's pretty good, and that could be, you know, a medicine, a surgery, a diagnostic test, whatever, and then something better comes along, it's proven to be better, and medicine advances. That's great, okay? We also totally expect there to be trials that fail, right? We come up with a drug um, or a surgical procedure Before we deploy it to millions of people, we test it and we find out, ah, it doesn't work, back to the drawing board, you know, that's science. Medical reversal is where a practice is adopted generally without a great evidence base. It's deployed widely. We spend, you know, in the United States, generally billions of dollars, right, before we find out that it doesn't work. Um, and I think um, you know both um, uh, Vinay and I um, are are very interested in kind of reading the medical literature, in appraising the medical literature, um, and we recognize how complex it is, um, and how often a quick read, a read of an abstract, you know, doesn't do justice to the evidence that's being presented. Um, And so we kind of love the idea that often, I guess maybe love and hate the idea, but often, you know, physicians, patients, journalists, whatever, um, kind of adopt things based on a good story, based on a quick read of the literature. Um, And then when something gets overturned, at that point, it's very easy to look back and say, You know, we should have seen this coming. You know, the evidence this was based on was terrible. Um, Or at least there were big enough holes in it that this was a possibility.
0: Yeah, I think that's a critical part to discuss further because you mentioned early on to the book, and I quote, sizable proportion of what doctors have done wrong. They're not wrong in retrospect, but unfounded when doing it. So perhaps you can talk a little bit more about what wrong really means and what the concept of learning is as a
1: function of time as we progress onward. Right, Uh, that's a great way to put it. Um, So it might be probably easiest for me. um, When when Vinaya and I first started talking about this book or this idea, because this really started not as a book but as a bunch of sort of journal articles, um, both outlining this idea and then actually trying to study it. both of us came to it with an experience of things that we had done in practice that we then had to sort of turn around and say, huh, we were doing the wrong thing. For me, I'm old, it was estrogen replacement therapy. And it was sort of throughout the 1990s, basically standard of care that a post-menopausal woman, you would say, you should be on estrogen replacement therapy. And I used to draw out this silly little picture that I would say, you know, it's gonna be kind of good for the bones. It might be a little bit bad for your risk of breast cancer, but it's really good for your cardiovascular risk. And so overall, you know, you should do this, okay? And then come the early 2000s with the HERS trial and then the Women's Health Initiative, which showed that clearly, you know, at best, estrogen replacement therapy is a wash, you know, does, you know, helps a little bit, harms a little bit, overall doesn't do anything. And maybe, depending on how you look at the literature, maybe overall is a little bit harmful. Um, for Vinay, I think he came into this with um, uh, PCI, Percutaneous Coronary Intervention for Stable Coronary Disease, um, where, you know, we of did that. Someone came in, oh, this person has angina, they've got single vessel disease, we can open that, let's open it, you know, and then um, first in the Courage trial, I guess, 2009, um, and then the Orbita trial, uh, you know, whatever, 2016, made it really clear that for those people with stable coronary disease um, and, you know, relatively simple anatomy, that those people do just as well with good aggressive medical therapy, um, and so, When you realize you're wrong, it's that, you know, I've bought into a practice for whatever reason. And then you read literature that tells you, you know, what you're doing is clearly wrong in a robust randomized control trial. And you just, you you can't not admit to yourself that, well, I've been recommending the wrong things. And sometimes, and it, boy, it happened to me a lot in the early 2000s of going back to these women who had put on extra replacement therapy and be like, you know what, you really don't need to be on that anymore. Uh, It's difficult
0: and very awkward to have those types of conversations, which is why you talk about a lot of vested interest in sticking to erroneous policies. Part of that is a concept of intuition, where these false ideas that eventually get reversed are predicated on intuition. You talk a lot about a culture of experimentation, RCTs on a medical decision basis. Where is the role of intuition in all of that? How would all of that come together in a culture of experimentation for RCT at an individual decision level?
1: Yeah. Um, boy, that's a really complex question. Uh, um, I'll, I'll maybe take it in, in two places because I think intuition, can definitely do us harm, and I think we've seen this a lot during COVID, yeah. um, where you know essentially everything we test has a good story behind it, right? And our intuition that it works is based on how we've learned medicine. You know, we've all learned the kind of what's plausible biologically right? We've gone through our physiology classes. We've gone through pathophysiology. We understand how pharmaceuticals work. Um, and everything that we test, therefore, comes to us with a really good story of like, this is why this should work, right? And so our intuition often leads us to adopting a practice, even if we recognize the the actual real world empiric data is not so great because it's built on this great story. Um, So that's a big part of why reversal happens. I'm not sure if this is where you're going, but I don't wanna totally disregard intuition in Mm -hmm. clinical care, right? Because, you know, some people, and mostly the people who sort of put up evidence-based medicine as a straw man, just to burn down, um, see evidence-based medicine as, ah, you know, you're just looking at the most recent New England Journal article and doing what it says. That's not what evidence-based medicine is, right? (laughs) Um, I mean, at the very beginning, um, you know, evidence-based medicine was described as a a way to practice where you incorporate clinical experience your understanding of, let's say, bioplausibility and, you know, the most recent best evidence from clinical trials. Um, and, you know, we all know, right, you and I certainly as practicing physicians know that, you know, it's probably the minority of decisions that we make for our patients, where we can go to a journal and say, look, ha, this is the answer, right? Yeah. Most times, we actually have to use our intuition. Think about what worked in the past. Think about who this patient is and how they're gonna respond, not only to the therapy, but probably as us, you know, as doctors telling them what's gonna what's going to help. Yeah, I like the way you phrased that because
0: it's the data and it's the application of the data, or as you guys wrote, the claims made about the evidence that then helps optimize decisions. So it's not as if one is wrong and one is correct. It's a certain blend that comes together that optimizes
1: right. it right and i think i think you know maybe what you're what you're thinking about is it's this has just gotten harder and harder and harder because um, you know the statistics in a lot of these articles have gotten more complex the way these articles are pitched to us becomes you know, more complex, you know, every newspaper, let's say every media outlet, yeah. right? Has time dedicated to, you know, new medical research, right? And then we've got things, you know, like Twitter just bombarding us um, with not only journalistic coverage of medical science, but to be honest with us, us, right? That like physician researchers or medical researchers you know they publish an article and they they introduce it with a twitter thread yeah. of you know trying to describe it um and so so much of the nuance is lost and so few of us have the time to really sit there for an hour you know read the article carefully talk about it with a couple of colleagues um before we're sort of pushed to say you know what do you think about you know the newest antidepressant for yeah. covid um,
0: no i completely agree and it's this willingness to do what may not be effective just because it's kind of tradition. And you talk about systems level reversals. Do you see social media type reversals coming particularly with the pandemic? <laughs> it's a dangerous question. Right? It is, it's yeah. a hot, hot issue. I apologize. <laughs>
1: I'm going to jump on the systems level yeah. reversals. Um, uh, you know, systems level interventions. And, and let's try to make that COVIDy, y you know, yeah. um, um, you know, you can think of a systems level intervention being um, we are going to close down the clinics and we're going to have you do video visits for the next month, okay, right. just sort of making something up. Um, um, so, you know, early on in the pandemic, and actually, you know, we describe this in the book, we describe the times in practice in which you really can't wait for good data, right? Yeah. Um, and there are times where things are um, are emergencies. Um, there are things where the problem you're facing is really an individual problem, um, where you know, come on, you're not going to have a trial and you can't wait for data to come. And so a lot of those sort of systems level decisions that we made about COVID right up front were absolutely appropriate. It's just like going by the seat of your pants, doing what you think is going to help. I think the problem with how we behave during COVID, and I think, you know, I, I don't think wherever you are on the spectrum of thinking that we um, we didn't take this seriously enough, or we took it too seriously, or whatever, um, would agree that what happened is that a lot of those things that we adopted by the seat of our pants, whether it was closing schools, closing offices, closing clinics, putting off cancer surgeries, um, made sense for a couple of weeks while we got ourselves together. But then beyond that, um, We should have adapted based on what we knew and probably most importantly, we should have started doing studies, you know, I mean, imagine if you know we spent I don't know, you know, two months in three big cities saying, you know what, we're going to randomize public schools, you know, (laughs) we're going to say. You know, schools in this district are, district are open, schools in this district are closed, um, and we're going to see what happens to rates in those districts. You know, we would have been able to go forward either knowing for a fact that we were doing the right thing, um, or saying that, boy, what we're doing is really, really hard, um, but at least we have some evidence that it's, that it's going to help us. I think that's very
0: important Uh, for the audience. uh, They do mention, the authors do mention the coronavirus. It is on page 137 is when they actually talk about pandemic preparations, and it's quite prescient in what they wrote and what we experienced. And I like this culture of experimentation as it could have applied to our approach to COVID-19, where you have these regions, these cities that undergo different policies to see what is effective. Why do you think we didn't engage in that policy? Why do you think we
1: didn't go down that route? Yeah, um, I mean, I think to some extent we were unprepared. Um, You know, our quote unquote pandemic preparedness um, was a a list of policies that were drawn from kind of all over the place, often from old data, you know, a surprising amount based on like, you know, the 1918 flu pandemic, right? Um, um, Which I think probably was a start, but it would be so interesting. You know, I think now what's gonna happen is we are gonna take knowledge that we've learned from this pandemic and apply it to future pandemics. But I haven't heard a whole lot of discussion about, look, the next pandemic is going to be different from this pandemic, right? Maybe it won't be a coronavirus. Maybe it will be an influenza virus, or maybe it'll be something different. And even if it's another coronavirus, it's going to be a different coronavirus. You yeah. know? Maybe it'll be one with um, you know, twice the virulence and three times the mortality, right? And that maybe what the preparation has to be is, look, we've got stage one preparedness, which is how do we flatten the curve? How do we make sure hospitals aren't overwhelmed? And then there's stage two preparedness, which is how do we run these kind of trials, um, you know, like the trials which gave us dexamethasone, which can quickly take, you know, the I don't know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, God forbid, millions of patients who are seeking care, and you know, use those to get answers in, in you know, weeks to months. I think that
0: idea of the trials and experimentations is something you guys explore quite a bit. You guys introduce a concept of mega trials where you would introduce a sizable patient population into studies examining just these very issues. But part of the problem to getting to that point are these concepts of observational studies, which you discuss heavily in your book. Can you talk about how observational studies lead to reversals in your book and how for the pandemic, the
1: observational studies led to a lot of the controversy we saw. Yeah, uh, you know, so we we've come a long way with observational studies over the last thirty years, right? Um, I mean, observational studies. Um, you know, for uh, for those who are who are newer to this, you know, an observational study is is not an experiment. We don't decide um, that one group is being exposed to an intervention and one group is being exposed to placebo and Via randomization, those groups are basically identical. Um, an observational trial is: we let nature take its course. We observe um, the outcomes on people who, let's say, were exposed to—I don't know—chemicals in their environment or lead paint, and then we also expose. We also observe people who weren't exposed to those things, and we look at the outcome over time and compare those groups. Um, now. It's obvious even from my example, right? Yes, kids who are exposed to lead paint are different from kids who weren't exposed to lead paint because of the lead paint exposure, but oh my God, those kids live in a completely different world, right? Based on what their housing's like, the wealth of their family, the neighborhood they live in, the demographics, everything. Um, and so what you end up is a difference between these two groups and outcomes, which might be due to the lead paint, but it might be due to everything else, right? And so that's that's the whole correlation doesn't equal causation. Mm-hmm. And that's like the first thing any of us learn in any statistics class, yeah. right? And and I think the most the most brilliant um, summary of that is in an XKCD cartoon, right? Yeah. <laughs> I always quote. Um, so like, we know that. Um, but the problem is, is that observational data can be really attractive. And honestly, it's gotten more and more attractive as our researchers have been better and better at controlling for the differences between groups. And then also um, using data from you know, so-called natural experiments um, where, yeah, two groups get different exposures, but their different exposures almost come in a random way. Um, the problem is one, the studies that do all that really well are few and far between. And there's been some nice data really, that when we look at um, at clinical questions that, that are addressed in observational studies and then later addressed in randomized control studies, um, that Observational studies are pretty good at predicting what an RCT will show, but they're not perfect. Mm-hmm. And about twenty-five percent of the time, they're wrong. And there's no way to know what twenty-five percent they're going to be wrong. Um, you mentioned in the book, you know, we talk, we spend a lot of time saying, you know, how can we do better? How can we yeah. use these mega trials? Um, And, you know, the problem is, is that most of our clinical trials these days are, you know, they're run out of individual institutions and multi-center trials, you know, we're mostly talking about three to five centers, um, often funded by, you know, one drug company or one grant. Um, And those work well, but those naturally limit the number of patients you see. Um, And so we really have to figure out a way of changing how these studies are financed, how these studies are planned, how these studies are run. So whatever it is, you can say, boy, we're going to leverage, you know, every patient who's diagnosed in the next six months with rheumatoid arthritis nationally, Mm -hmm. um, rather than every patient who's developed rheumatoid arthritis and presents to University of Chicago, South Shore Hospital, Northwestern, you know, over six months. Certainly, it's an issue worth
0: discussing. And you mentioned the lack of funding for those types of studies, but you also talk about the cost of consequences that could be presented to a federal agency like the NIH to justify these types of large studies. Have there been any attempts to create an infrastructure or some sort of research organization that actively looks into these types of clinical studies, or that's yet still to manifest?
1: I think that's really yet to come. Um, I really do. Um, and I think that's going to be you know a, a national initiative and you know, I think we talked about it a little bit of the book. My kind of dream is is that you know we still need pharma to make money. We still need pharma to make great drugs. Um, I think we don't need them to be running these trials. Um, and I wish there was a way that you know, as drugs are developed, that the money that they would spend on these trials go into some, you know, sync managed by someone else um, who can then use that money to design trials, which, yeah, test that, um, but also get other information. Yeah, I think clinical study design- Stop for a <laughs> second. I have to stop this and restart it because I run out of memory after 23 minutes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, perfect. Uh, You talk a lot about
0: RCTs as the gold standard and clinical study design is a critical component in the quality of data and claims that can be made. You also talk about the issue of ethics, how that at times can put constraints in the nature of the clinical study design. Do you see a need to go back to the fundamentals, assess innovations in study designs, assess how we look at medical ethics and upgrade it for a post-pandemic world?
1: um <laughs> wow uh, <laughs> um so i i, I am i'm going to say obviously i i've been through all the ethics training you know yeah. that we all need to to be on all these grants and and i actually think that you know ethics in american research um, is probably at its apex now. And I am so impressed at how rarely we read journals these days and object to the kind of care that the control group got or, or locating a trial, you know, in a third world country, um, so the control group can get worse care than they got here. I think as as researchers and as the consumers of that research, we've gone you know, enormously far. Um, I spend a lot of time both in thinking and Vinaya and I in the book about um, you know about the ethics of things like you know sham surgical trial, yeah. um, which we're actually very sort of very enthusiastic about. Um, because we recognize that, you know, in a sham trial, there may be harm to people in the sham group, um, but the harm is is very small. And once you pull the camera back and compare that to the harm of giving the therapy to millions of people when you haven't tested it, if it turns out not to work, you know, the harm um, to those small group of people in the sham surgery side is very small. Um, You know, when I think about ethics in um, pandemic trials, um, that's a struggle. Um, I think what's come up, you know, early on in this pandemic is, boy, you know, purposely exposing people to pandemic viruses, to speed um, therapeutic trials, right? We're not going to wait until you get exposed to COVID, we're just going to give you COVID. is um, is sort of exciting. Um, you recognize what the ethical implications of that are, and it's one of those places that you can even feel comfortable. You can even feel uncomfortable um, with informed consent, right? Um, you can imagine a group of people consenting to that trial and still feeling like it's wrong. Yeah. Um, um, The other thing is if we go to sort of mega trials and we're testing things, you know, quickly in hundreds of thousands of people, you know, we're guaranteeing that we're going to look back and saying, huh, there were 50,000 people in that trial who got bad therapy as we tried Mm -hmm. to figure this out. And, you know, I think we recognize that in small RCTs um, when we're talking about, treating a population during a pandemic, it's a little less comfortable. Um,
0: It is difficult to quantify and characterize harm in objective terms. One of the things I found very interesting in the book is when you discuss the frameworks of harm when MRI and its role in stroke management. So you broke down harm in terms of cost, harm persisting in erroneous policies, harm loss of trust. So harm is a complex concept do we need to update that understanding or incorporate the public into that understanding to help move forward with these clinical study designs and ethical considerations?
1: Yeah, I think it is something that when you think about our informed consent um, for trials, um, um, I think our informed consent often really focuses on uh, the harm of the treatment, right? Um, That, look, what we're giving you might be harmful. um, And um, you need to sort of consent to that. Um, I think the other harms that you point out are are really critical. Um, um, There is um, the opportunity cost, right, of of maybe not getting a therapy, which would be beneficial to you. Um, Certainly, when we think about medical reversal, boy, there's the opportunity cost of sinking a ton of resources into a therapy over years, which doesn't help. Um, I think in trials, we don't have to worry as much about people's view of medicine going down the line. Um, I worry a lot about medical reversal and the harm it does to to people's faith in medicine. You know, everybody feels like medicine flip-flops all the time now, just given what the coverage is. Um, And I think that's, to a great extent, unfair. But I mean, I've lived with, you know, all those women I gave estrogen replacement therapy to. And I've had patients who are in their 90s now who I'll recommend some, they're like, remember when you gave me estrogen replacement therapy and you were wrong about that. Um, um, so I, I, I'm not sure I worry as much about the harm in research um, where we're so controlled and we're so good about consent. Um, but I do think as you point out that when we talk about doing research you know, in the setting of a pandemic, um, We have to be really aware of that and really aware of how people are gonna look back on what we did um, in the course of an emergency.
0: How much of this is actually medical though? Because if you think about your experiences with the patients who you may have implemented a therapy that is no longer efficacious, you maintain that relationship. You acknowledge that there was a reversal and you maintain that bond. Is that something the healthcare system should do better with the public in order to get them to better understand reversals are inevitable? Wow, Uh,
1: that's that's an amazing question. And I think it's an amazingly optimistic view. (laughs) Fair Um, enough. (laughs) Because I think probably both of us as physicians recognize that when we are caring for patients, have a bond with that person where we, you know, me and my patient are working as a team for the betterment of that patient's health, right? Um, That can withstand a lot, right? And, you know, I'm very much upfront with, look, this is why we're making this decision. These are the potential consequences, both good and bad of this decision. So if things go poorly, we understand how we got here. We got here together and we understand what we can do next. Um, You know, when it's someone who's, Getting something from the anonymous, you know, healthcare field, right, mm-hmm. or the CDC or the federal government, um, and if things go badly, um, they're immediately hearing about all the problems in the decision making on Twitter, and then getting mailings from lawyers saying, like, "Have you been exposed to X, Y, and Z? You know, you can join our class action lawsuit." Um, you know even if the right decisions were made, even if everybody was doing the right thing, every even if everybody consented in a proper way, there's going to be so much pushback that in retrospect, I think people will be uncomfortable with it.
0: Yeah, yeah it's unfortunately an inevitability. Given yeah. what we learned in the pandemic and just how the experience of healthcare in the public has shifted, mm. do you feel that many of the solutions you discussed towards the end of the book were validated? Or could potentially be updated for a post-pandemic world.
1: Um, I,
0: of course, I'm going to say they were valid. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to say,
1: I am like you know so prescient. It's incredible. Um, no, but 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 really, I mean, I think you know, at the most simple terms, right? Um, our point was that whenever possible, we should base medical decisions on robust clinical trials. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, you know, I will I will put that on my tombstone, right? I'm gonna stand yeah. by that till I die. Um, um, and I think what bears updating is, boy, you know, we have just been through an incredibly challenging time with often having to make clinical decisions with insufficient evidence. You know, sometimes we did well with it, sometimes we didn't do well with it. I think where we didn't do as well as we could have is, is running the trials quickly um, to get data quickly. Um, and maybe that's the way our, you know, healthcare research system is set up. I think maybe that was based on some optimism is that, you know, we all kept thinking we're gonna get through this quickly. Um, and it was stupid thinking, right? Yeah. I mean, pandemics last a couple of years. That's the way it works. That's the way it's always gonna work. And we thought, oh, science is gonna save us. It's gonna be different this time, you know? We should have known, um, and we should have said, "Look, you know, we're in this for the long haul, and so let's, you know, save as many people as we can. Let's save the healthcare system up front, and then let's just go all in to research this. Um, so maybe we will be able to shorten the pandemic because we'll know exactly what to do. And let's basically, you know, do informed consent on the country and let them know, you know, what the risks are, what the costs are, but why we're doing this." Um, yeah, there was a lot working against that. There was.
0: Unfortunately, I think people would have benefited from looking at some of the solutions. One in particular was this concept of a default enrollment into clinical studies. You mm. talk about providers, physicians, nurses, and patients engaging in an active culture of experimentation in which the default decision is to be enrolled in the clinical study. I think we would have Benefited tremendously in the pandemic if we would have implemented those policies. If not exposure to COVID, at least with regards to certain social restriction policies and certain methods. Did you ever bring that up to policymakers? Were
1: you ever given that opportunity to talk? Um, I I would say I I wasn't given the opportunity, but I didn't seek the opportunity. Um, yeah. and you know, it, I think we all. Um, uh, we, we all do what we feel like our job is, and um, um, I feel like maybe, you know, that's where I fall short in what I do. I, I you know, I see myself as a doctor and a medical educator. Um, my experience with COVID was, you know, like all of us, being freaked out for a month, um, and then sort of falling back into, okay, I get this. We deal with respiratory viruses. I'm a hell of a mm-hmm. lot more worried than getting about getting resistant TB than I am about getting COVID. So I can go back, get back to my kind of normal clinical practice, take care of my patients, inpatient, outpatient, whatever, Um, and pivot to how do we continue to educate students in this like morass we're in. Um, um, You know, maybe the way you posed that question, I fell short and I should have been banging down the doors a little bit. I, you know, colleagues of mine, I think, did a better job at um, at sort of taking public stances on things. And to be honest with you, boy, it's been hard for those people um, yeah. because so many, so much about COVID has gotten to be so, you know, rife with conflict and disagreement and um, um, that a lot of those people have had to, you know, take a lot of hate from all over the place. Um, it's intimidating. It is intimidating. And, you know, maybe, maybe I'm a wimp and I was like, I, I just exactly. want to sit and take care of my patients, but I feel like that's what I'm better at. Maybe that's a cop-out. No, I don't think it's a cop-out at all, Dr. Sifu.
0: I think writing this and presenting this information to the world is a great service. And I think it's on us to implement the knowledge that is presented to us. So I don't think that it's necessarily incumbent on you to speak, particularly given how politically turbulent medicine has become in this day and age. So I don't necessarily want it to be a criticism against you. It's more about how information is disseminated to the public from those who have the right information. Yeah. It's very difficult for people to explain concepts to people who don't really want to understand them. And it's almost an issue of now ethics. Uh, does a medical profession have an ethical obligation to continue to educate people who are actively resisting or in some cases, verbally
1: violent to yeah.
0: those teachings?
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, 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 All I can do is agree um, and say, thanks for uh, being a little bit of a therapist for me during the session as well. I, don't <laughs> think, I don't think that's what you bargained for. We, we,
0: all, we all wear many hats. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Cecil, I want to leave you with one key question. I think this is an important one. The concept of reversals has shown up time and time again, as alluded in your book. It's obviously paramount in how we understand the pandemic. Going forward, do you envision another surgery procedure or therapeutic that will inevitably be reversed or could be understood through the principles that you discuss in the book?
1: I, I think I, I won't get into like predicting what's going to fall, um, but I, I think there's a lot out there, right, which is destined for reversal. Um, and, you know, those are obvious things. Those are things that, you know, I refer patients to all the time that when I look at why do we do this? Um, the reason we do it is because well, it makes sense. And, I've sent some people for it and they've gotten better, you know, um, that's inadequate evidence. And, you know, some percentage of those, if truly tested, you know, won't be borne out to work. Um, I think the other thing, um, that, uh, we've written some about recently, which I'm very interested in, um, is, is kind of the next step in this is is actually reappraisal, um, Mm -hmm. which is, where, you know, there are therapies that we've adopted based on robust data, okay, and we've been doing the right thing, but the world changes and some of those interventions just no longer work over time, you know, the thing which has made the biggest splash recently has been aspirin for primary prophylaxis, right? Um, And, you know, aspirin hasn't changed in the last 30 years. What has changed is that we're dealing with a population which is both older, but also in better health, you know, smokes less, um, exercises more, consumes less trans fat. And if our population has an elevated cardiovascular risk, they get on a statin, which probably overwhelms any small benefit to aspirin. And so, while aspirin was beneficial in the 80s, it's not beneficial, you know, in the 2020s, um, you know, as primary prophylaxis. And I bet there are a lot of things, you know, like lung cancer screening, like um, screening for AAAs, that as our populations change, our habits change, our therapies change, that those things that, you know, when we adopted them, we were doing the right thing won't work anymore. So I think we'll be dealing not only with having to deal with reversals, but having to deal with you know, reappraising therapies, uh, which, which, which have been shown to work in the future. So things will only to get more complex, hopefully for our children and, and not us.
0: Well, that's a great point. And I will, for the audience, uh, share a link to that article about aspirin and the uh, change in the policy from the United States uh, Service Corona Task Force. Uh, the idea that the population changes, that we as Americans change, and the therapeutics then change accordingly is an important one for people to understand because healthcare is a relationship. There's a certain dynamic to it. The medicines we take reflect the lives that we lead, and that relationship, I think, is important for people to understand that. So uh, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Sifu. It was a great pleasure uh, talking with you. I want to, again, for the audience, recommend Ending Medical Reversal, Improving Outcomes, Saving Lives. It is an incredibly good book, well-written, and something that anybody acquainted with the medical profession, whether working in or observing from outside, can stand to benefit from. So thank you so much, Dr. Seafood.
1: Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Your questions
0: were, were challenging in a good way. <laughs> thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Bye-bye.